Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. Everybody hurts sometimes, so everyone knows pain. But understanding pain is a different matter. Today's episode of Move Forward Radio features interviews with physical therapists Joseph Brentz and John Ware, who discuss where pain comes from and how it works. As you'll hear in the interview, these are important concepts, because research has suggested that simply understanding pain can improve an individual's ability to manage pain and reduce its negative impact on daily life. Here's our interview with Joe Brents and John Ware. Joe, let's start with you. In the simplest sense, everybody knows what pain is. It's something uncomfortable we feel. It's that time when we bump our knee or do something and we get that ouch feeling. Today's episode is really about going deeper in our understanding of pain. So in a little bit more detail, give me a sense of what pain is and how our understanding of pain has changed over the years. Well, thanks for the, the question, Jason. I think that this question is, is extremely relevant to all the listeners out there. So what is pain? Well, our understanding of pain has obviously shifted from a model of where we used to think that pain existed at the level of the tissues to a point where we now know that pain doesn't exist until the brain determines its exists. So pain is actually defined as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage were described in terms of such damage. Now, this definition was derived by the International Association for the Study of Pain, and it's got a few key words that I want to discuss with you. They say that it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. So, obviously, we feel pain. It has a sensory component, and it generally has a negative emotional experience as well. Usually, we're not very happy when we hurt. Now, what's interesting is that the International Association also said that this experience is associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So in our new understanding or our newer definition of pain, an actual injury doesn't have to occur for us to experience pain. During this discussion today, we'll discuss this a little bit further and how this can exist, but where we used to think that an injury was necessary, we don't think that anymore. And that's really, really important for the listeners to understand. Now, what's really important for the listeners to also understand is that we have moved away from this gate control theory model that we all learned when we were back in PT school. The gate control theory model said that pain signals were sent up to the brain. We had slow, unmyelinated signals that were sent up or fast myelinated signals. And these pain signals would determine the type of pain that we would experience. So the slower signals were thought to bring on this achy type feeling, and the fast signals would bring on this sharp shooting type feeling. Now, the individuals who came up with that model went on to develop a model that says, you know what, pain's not actually existing at the level of tissues. It's not pain signals being relayed up to the brain, but instead the brain is sending out an output based upon signals that it receives. So it's not pain signals being sent up to the brain, but instead danger signals. So danger signals are sent up, the brain looks at that information, and it responds, if necessary, by sending an output of pain. Let's go through a quick example. You know, you mentioned there's sort of the whole actual versus potential. 
but let's just talk about how that pain signal is sent. So let's go with something basic. If I'm walking through the house and I stub my toe, basically you're suggesting that the previous understanding is that my toe says that I hurt. And now you're basically saying that my brain's telling me that, that my toe hurt. Sort of take me through that a little bit. You're exactly right, Jason. So what's happening? If I'm walking along and I stub my toe, information goes from my toe the whole way up to the brain. Okay? And this is all simply an input. Pain doesn't exist yet. Once that information reaches the brain, different portions of the brain, which are termed the neuromatrix, okay, so the neuromatrix is a comprehensive term to include different portions of the brain that respond to that information. So different portions of the brain communicate, and they think, okay, we just got information that he stubbed his toe. Do we need to respond by sending an output of pain to defend him? If the brain in all this wisdom thinks that there's enough information that there potentially could be damage to the tissues, then it will send an output of pain to those tissues. So pain didn't exist when you initially stubbed the toe. Pain existed when the brain looked at the information that came from the toe up the nervous system, and it determined if that information was enough of a threat that it needs to respond. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And so that leads to the next question, which I'm sure somebody would have, which is, okay, so that's all fine and great. We've learned that the pain signal now comes from a different place, but essentially, so what? You know, whether the presents under the Christmas tree come from my parents or they come from Santa Claus, what does it matter as long as they're there? And so, you know, similarly, what does it matter where the signal's coming from? So explain what the significance is understanding this difference and now knowing the brain's role in this system. A great question, Jason. What's really, really important about this scenario or about this new concept or new understanding of pain is that portions of the brain that make up the neural matrix also are related to our emotions. So say that I'm having a really, really bad day and I walk along and I stub my toe. The brain actually may be more defensive because I'm having a bad day. Or if I have a comorbidity of depression or anxiety, my brain is actually on defense already. So it actually may send an output of pain regardless of the amount of signal that's coming up. So because the brain is now involved as the mediary in determining if pain exists, a lot of different variables come into play to determine if pain will exist. What we're finding out is that societal interactions or the interaction even between the practitioner, the physical therapist, and the patient can have an influence on the brain's output of pain. Give me an example of that. Sure. So there's a term that's coming up in the literature right now called therapeutic alliance. And what we're finding out is that if a patient trusts me and if the patient feels like we have an alliance, that we're working together to get rid of their pain, I likely to provide an entire treatment of placebo intervention and get a response because I affected the brain's output of pain. So some individuals may come into our clinic, a history of chronic low back pain, they're frustrated because all of the images have indicated, you know, there's really nothing there. And they feel like they need something there to get better. So potentially there may not actually be actual tissue damage, but they experience pain. So when they come to me, I connect with them, and I'm able to interact with them to influence how the brain responds in its perception of the low back. A very interesting concept and one that we're continuing to attempt to understand, but what we're finding out is that our interaction with the patient is extremely, extremely important and likely may be influencing the results just as much as the interventions that we're giving them. I want to come back to that alliance and the, and the placebo concept in a little bit. 
For a moment, I want to sort of continue on pain itself. So there is that initial sensation that the brain determines if there's something to protect against. It sends that out signal. But beyond that, beyond that sort of acute, immediate pain that somebody might feel, how does pain affect our lives? It affects it significantly, especially for individuals that develop more chronic pain. I think that this is a relation to the society that we live in and the culture that we live in. I had just read a statistic earlier today, Jason, that the United States, makes up 4% of the entire world's population. But we consume 80% of the world's population of opioids. Okay? Right. So 4% of the population consumes 80% of narcotic pain medication. So the society and the culture that we live in can actually influence somebody's pain and somebody's pain response. So I think, and John can actually chime in here, that the experience of pain... It's completely individualized, and it's likely influenced upon the society that we live in and the culture and the individuals that we interact with. So let's bring in John Ware. And, and John, give me a sense then, if we're talking about society, let, let's talk about the society we do live in here in the, in the U.S. How prevalent is the treatment of pain in the U.S.? Well, in the piece that we uh, did for the, the consumer guide that this interview relates to, we cited some statistics from the Institute of Medicine report showing that we're spending upwards of between 500 and 700 billion dollars a year on treatment for pain and just to put that in perspective that you know we're spending about 250 billion on treating cancer we're spending about 300 billion on uh, treating heart disease so the cost data from the IOM report are really staggering and they're actually probably a conservative estimate because they don't include the cost of pain incurred in various institutional settings like nursing homes, prisons, and even in the military. And they also don't account for the costs associated with caregivers having to take time off work to care for a spouse or another family member who's having a pain problem. So the financial burden of pain is really, it's tremendous and it's, it's growing in particular with the demographic shift towards the aging of the population. Does this new understanding of pain, or evolving maybe is what I should say, more so than new, does that, do you think, set us up for reducing those costs by changing the way treatment of pain occurs? I would hope so. There's no question that improving our understanding of how pain works, we could have a tremendous impact on the costs associated with treating pain. You know, Joe and I, I think we're of the same mind that we believe that there's been a tendency, and he touched on this with increased use of opioids, an increased tendency to medicalize chronic and persistent pain problems, and not just through the overprescription of opioids and other medications, but the excessive and unwarranted ordering of diagnostic imaging, such as MRI in particular, which tends to lead down this road of identifying quote-unquote, abnormalities that are mistaken as pathology, what is otherwise known as a false positive. I've heard this referred to as, uh, in the literature, by some writers in this area as a diagnostic misadventure. And it invariably leads down a rabbit hole ranging from minimally invasive interventional procedures to eventually surgery. For example, the current cost of having a lumbar fusion, for instance, is about $65,000, But, you know, there's really very little evidence that this procedure is helpful for people with a a chronic low back problem. As a PT, if you gave me $65,000 to treat somebody's back pain, I could treat dozens, hundreds of people with chronic low back pain and probably have a better outcome. 
So it's easy to see how this cycles on itself. So, you know, Joe mentioned the alliance and sort of tied into that is the idea that a patient coming in with pain wants to be understood that they have pain. They want to feel that something is being done. I think the last thing they want to hear is essentially, well, I don't really think you have a physical problem, but this is more in in your head. So they they want to feel like something is being done, and that can obviously lead to some of those rabbit holes that you talked about. Along those lines, though, from the the medical perspective, from the, the perspective of a physical therapist or anybody else, how difficult is it to read pain? So everyone's different. Somebody comes in and says, I hurt. You know, isn't that a challenge from your perspective to try and understand what that really means? And how do you go about doing that? Well, the first thing I try to do is differentiate as physical therapists. We are skilled. We have a lot of diagnostic skill in identifying musculoskeletal pathology. And, you know, it's very important that we are able to rule out pathology, particularly in this day and age where we have, you know, direct access. And it's been shown that physical therapists are highly skilled within the uh, area of musculoskeletal care and conditions of identifying pathology. But aside from that, when it comes to reading pain and understanding the, the individual variability of pain, it's not just that it's hard to read it, it's even hard for patients to describe it themselves. You know, our various pain scales don't quite do it justice. It seems really wholly inadequate to just have a patient describe their pain on some numeric scale. Intensity is just one side of this multifaceted, all-encompassing pain experience. There's a couple of popular books out there by Elaine Scarry and David Biro, which discuss how difficult it is for patients to describe their pain. They discuss how being in a persistent pain state kind of results in this regression to a almost previous state that renders us unable to, you know, even utilize our language capabilities. So in that sense, each individual's pain is comparable to the extent that there are really are, it's very difficult for people to find adequate words to describe it. It's this state of kind of a wavering regression and, and isolation. The comparison has been made between pain and hunger and thirst as being a need state. But unlike these other need states, there's really no clear, tangible antidote for pain. It's not like, you know, when you're hungry, you can find something to eat. You're thirsty, you get some water. With pain, there's a need, but you're not really quite sure what it is. I think another feature of the pain experience that makes it so unique to each individual is and uh, Joe touched on this, was, you know, the context and the role of memory and past experiences on that current pain experience. So when you combine these highly variable factors with the unique kind of genetic architecture of each person's nervous system and brain, it makes more sense why two individuals with the same injury, the same ankle sprain, will have such varied pain experiences. Really the challenge, I think, lies in appreciating the role of all the different inputs and how they can impact each individual's pain experience. I think it's easy for people to understand that everyone's threshold may or, you know, may be different, that one person may be more sensitive than another person. I think it's also easy to forget, though, that my level of pain may not be indicative of the actual severity of the injury. So, you know, Joe touched on that earlier. But can you discuss that a little bit? I mean, sometimes what hurts most and most immediately isn't actually a a big injury, and I think sometimes we, we lose sight of that. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I watched the uh, the movie Lone Survivor, okay? And they had those guys uh, up in Afghanistan fighting that uh, firefight with the Taliban fighters, right? And I'm thinking, uh, well, you think any of those guys really 
they had stubbed their toe while they were running down that mountain would have noticed pain from their stubbed toe while they're running away from in the midst of a firefight. And that's an extreme example, but most people appreciate that uh, when you're in a state of threat, that what you're going to experience is going to be considerably different than when you're not. And pain is very much a context-dependent experience. And when I try to explain this to patients so that they don't get the idea that, you know, this, this is all in your head, I explain to them that there are very real physical changes, but the changes are not necessarily so much manifested in their muscles, in their joints, and in their connected tissues. It's really what's going on is in their nervous system. And these are very real changes in their brain, both in the central nervous system, by their spinal cord, and in their peripheral nerves. And when you explain it in those terms and you go into some detail, as the literature has shown, the uh, pain education literature by Mosley and Lou and others, patients understand it and it makes sense to them and they understand, it helps them understand why their pain is so variable even from day to day. So when you explain it in those terms of being this change in plastic changes in the nervous system, it really, a light goes on and they understand that there's something going on on a level that's not just restricted to just damaged tissues. So, Joe, I want to bring you back in here and let's talk about that patient understanding. And is getting a patient to understand how pain works, can that be beneficial? Going back to that idea, as you said, of where the pain is occurring and understanding, for example, that social pressures or the emotional tone of the day may actually affect how my body feels in other unrelated ways. Exactly. Great question there, Jason. And the site uh, study performed a couple of years ago by Stephen George out of the University of Florida, he conducted a very large-based experiment it was a randomized controlled trial with three different groups. And he had over 3,000 participants in the study. It was, a, it was a very, very large study. And what he looked at was individuals, after they were done with basic training in the Army, they were either given a 45-minute educational piece about pain, they were given a month of core stabilization exercises, or a month of generalized exercises. And what they found after tracking these individuals for a period of time is that the individuals who simply were educated for 45 minutes about what is pain, they sought care the least for low back pain. So really, really significant that the understanding of pain, it wasn't how strong they were, wasn't how strong their core was, but simply their understanding of what is actually a threat caused them to seek care less. So when we talk about the financial and economic burdens of pain, education can be a huge huge tool. And I'm really pleased that the, the APTA let myself and John work on this physical therapist guide to understanding pain because simply reading this potentially could reduce the costs associated with the seeking of care for pain. So education and knowledge about pain is really, really valuable. And again, it's that brain's determination of a threat. So if the brain looks at a situation and it understands, you know what, there's really not that much of a threat here. I understand what this is then it may not react quite as much. 
let's talk then too about back to that that alliance and building confidence between the physical therapist and the and the patient or or whoever the healthcare expert might be in that scenario. You know that word placebo gets thrown around all the time, and and I think most times when consumers hear it, it's in the situation of a trial, like you mentioned, somebody's mm-hmm. getting quote unquote real treatment and somebody's getting fake treatment. But as we're talking about this, is placebo fake treatment, or if it works, it works? Tell me about that. So great question, Jason. There's some evidence that came out of the University of Florida a couple years ago by Dr. Joel Bialowski that suggests that we maximize placebo or we should maximize placebo within our patient interactions. And that doesn't mean giving them fake treatments. That's simply understanding that our interaction between the patient can affect the outcome. Or some individuals with chronic pain, they may not like bright lights or loud noises. There's evidence to suggest that these individuals are sensitized to different types of inputs. So simply changing the inputs, where we used to call this placebo, or creating a different type of environment can affect the outcomes of that patient. Now, I don't want to support providing interventions that aren't based around a good scientific plausibility. With our understanding of pain, we understand that individuals with chronic pain are hypersensitive to bright light or to loud noise. It doesn't suggest that we should provide interventions that aren't based upon good scientific rationale. Yeah, absolutely. But this does then show, for example, that it's not only important that the treatment you give me, if I go to see you, you're my physical therapist, that the treatment you give me, it's not only important that the treatment works itself, whatever exercises you give me to do or stretches or whatever the case may be, that that not only works, but that I believe it's going to make me get better, that that seems to be a significant component of getting past the pain. Is that is that an accurate guess? You're exactly right, Jason. Last year, I had the opportunity to present at the American Academy of Orthopedic Annual Physical Therapy Conference. What I presented on was the neural matrix and the output of pain and output of altered motor programming that comes along with that. And what we suggest is that motivation, okay, motivation of the individual is extremely, extremely important for them to get better. It's in my belief that if a patient isn't motivated or doesn't believe that I can affect their pain experience, then I likely won't. So we first have to create that relationship with the patient to be able to alter their livid experience. So motivation, therapeutic alliance, expectations are all extremely important in the overall game or overall picture. I've talked to several clinicians about this, and a lot of clinicians seem to be on board. There are still some that are a little bit resistant or hesitant simply because they think it's their techniques that work or the exercises that work. I say, who really cares as long as we get that patient better, as long as they came into my clinic with pain and they walked out without pain? Sure. We don't know which input caused that output to decrease, but we know that something happened there, that we created a necessary context that created a less defensive response from the brain and nervous system. So some of improving this treatment, obviously, is, is purely on the, the physical therapist or whoever the healthcare expert is, as it should be. But, John Ware, as we look to sort of wrap up here, if I'm the consumer listening to this, we've talked about the importance of education. So, one, anybody who's listened to this is hopefully more educated than when they came in. That's a start. But beyond that, if I'm somebody who is in pain now or deals with pain sometimes, what should I be conscious of based on what we know? How can I further my education to try to help myself manage pain or improve my interactions with a physical therapist or any other healthcare expert? If patients get one thing, you know, and potential get one thing out of this would be that is an appreciation for the fact that pain is an output. It's not an input. I just can't emphasize that enough. 
once a patient that comes into me understands that their pain experience is something that is a perception and not a sensation, and they can get that distinction between, you know, danger messages coming in from the periphery, from their sprained ankle, from their sore back. Once they get that, that there's no such thing as a pain fiber or a pain sensor, that these are danger signals and that we have danger signals coming up constantly, all the time. It's just a matter of the context that we're in and certainly the intensity, but also our past experiences, our beliefs, our our past experiences with pain, our memories of having a previous episode of pain in that part of the body. I mean, it all comes into play, and the ultimate experience is, is it's an output of your brain. Pain itself is not an input. And also, I'd like for them to really appreciate that understanding pain is in and of itself very therapeutic, understanding how pain works, how it really works, how it's separate from tissue damage, how, you know, injury is more of a, of a stimulus event to connective tissues, whereas pain is a sensory event that is created in the brain by certain areas of the brain. And if they can grasp those basic concepts, they're basic, but they're not, you know, they're not simple to understand. But when patients do understand that, it, it, it really can lay the groundwork for a successful outcome, in my experience. Sure. I mean, between the stubbing the toe to go back to that previous example or the paper cut or the, the cramp that comes and then goes away, sometimes what seems like ex- extreme injury in the moment, I suppose, based on pain level, turns out not to be, and it can be comforting to understand that. Joe, for you, you know, for somebody listening to this, what do you hope they come away with? Sure. I think that John had alluded to some great points. I think that it's really important to understand that the degree of pain that you experience doesn't equate to the degree of injury that you have. So you may have a significant amount of pain, but that doesn't mean you have a significant amount of injury. So there's not always this linear relationship between the two. Going to a physical therapist, they can help determine the amount of threat that's potentially occurring at the level of the tissues because we are very good at looking at the musculoskeletal system. And they can show you ways to move better and better ways to understand your pain experience and to simply just to move more efficiently. Another thing that I would like to touch upon that we really didn't talk much about today is that the words we use can actually hurt as well. So when we talk about placebo, when we talk about context, when we talk about environment, there's some association between certain words we use and certain ways we address the situation and the amount of pain that we experience. For example... The word arthritis has really this negative connotation to it. Arthritis seems to be associated with pain. And when somebody's told they have arthritis or told, you know what, this image looks really bad, you're bone on bone, you know, your, your knee's pretty far gone, all these words can actually create the brain to become more defensive. So simply understanding that you may be given a, a diagnosis of pathology, but you're not given a diagnosis of pain. So even though the two may sometimes be associated, just because you're told a word by your physician or by your physical therapist, it doesn't mean you're going to be in pain the rest of your life. And I think that physical therapists have a very unique role in helping you learn more about pain and helping your brain become less defensive so that you experience less pain. Incredibly powerful information. Joe Brent, John Ware, thank you so much. Thank you, thank Jason. You. 
For more on this and other health and wellness topics, visit MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer website of the American Physical Therapy Association. At MoveForwardPT.com, you can access a physical therapist's guide to understanding pain, plus a list of nine things you should know about pain. Access other episodes of Move Forward Radio at MoveForwardPT.com or on iTunes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest at MoveForwardPT. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.